You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Middle East has, for longer than any of us have been alive, been a furnace of turmoil. Religion, mineral wealth, culture and ethnic heritage have all ignited such tensions that have necessitated the intervention of world powers. To the call of her allies, Australians have been called to fight in both world wars. In 1916, Australian troops participated in the defence of the Suez Canal and the reconquest of the Sinai Peninsula. The following year, in 1917, Australian troops advanced against the Ottomans into Palestine and assisted in the capture of Beersheba, Gaza and Jerusalem. By 1918, along with the rest of the Egyptian expeditionary force, They had occupied Lebanon, Syria, and on the 30th of October, 1918, finally hostilities with the Ottoman Empire ceased following the signing of the Armistice of Madras. More than 20,000 Australians were deployed to serve in the Middle East. Of these, 1,300 would never return. Perhaps key... A key result of the war, however, would leave the hotly contested um, land of Palestine and Transjordan under a British mandate. And then just 20 years later, on September 3rd, 1939, Australia again was called to war. The United Kingdom had declared war with the Axis powers of Nazi Germany, Italy and Japan. Again, Australia, at the call of Great Britain, joined in what would become known as the Second World War. (coughs) Most military units deployed by Australia overseas in the following two years, 1940 to 1941, were sent to the Mediterranean and Middle East regions. They formed a key part of the Commonwealth forces in the area. And so as history shows, even on the far side of the globe, over here in what is today 21st century, the lucky country, all of us could in some way be, feel, the, feel the torrid effects of the seething cauldron of Middle Eastern animosity. In the wrap-up of the Second World War, the Arab Emirate of Jordan would be released from the British mandate in the 1946 Treaty of London and the land of Palestine two years later in 1948 after 28 years under British administration. The withdrawal of the British from the land of Palestine, however, was not that simple. There were two groups wanting the same patch of land. Both claimed it was theirs by divine right. And so the United Nations developed a petition plan for the two groups. This, would, this plan would give both Arabs and Jews a home in Palestine. Jerusalem would stay under international control. Israel then accepted the plan, but the Palestinians did not. And so begins the Arab-Israeli conflict as we see it today. The Jewish people, having made Aliyah to the land of Palestine to escape the horrors of the Holocaust, would now be left without British protection, surrounded by Arab nations and militia groups whose welcoming salute would be a shower of stones and bullets, landmines and shelling. And so on the 14th of May 1948 in Tel Aviv, one day before Britain's withdrawal, Israel was declared an independent state. The wars that followed would be miraculous. The following day, the armies of 
four Arab countries, Egypt, Syria, Transjordan and Iraq, entered into parts of what had been the British mandatory Palestine, launching the 1948 Arab-Israeli war. With them were contingents of Yemen, Morocco, Saudi Arabia and Sudan. The purpose of the invasion was to prevent the establishment of the Jewish state at its inception. With some Arab leaders talking of driving the Jews into the sea. From the very outset of the nation's rebirth, it was clear that this Western democracy would be somewhat of a foreign enclosure besieged by a frontier of hatred. It is this conflict that is central to Middle Eastern turmoil today. So we're going to come back to the wars that followed Israel's independence in a bit. But first we want to step back and understand where it all began. Well, as our title suggests, the Bible has the answer to this conflict. But it also has the background. So if you have a Bible with you, let's turn to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, the first book of your Bible. Because the story of the Middle Eastern conflict is one packed with all the drama that, are, that is demanded of a good story. And this one's going to have a lot of it for some 4,000 years of history. In Genesis 15, the man Abraham has a problem. He's old, like 50, uh, 85 years old. And he and his wife, Sarah, still don't have a child. There was no one to carry on the family name. And in chapter 15, verse 2, Abram, it appears, has created a will, leaving his entire estate to his servant Eliezer. Now, in the previous chapter, Abraham has just led his servants to fight a confederacy of four kings. And so it would make sense that before going into battle, he would first elect the beneficiaries of his estate. And sign his will. But in verse 2, Abram's not satisfied with this, with, with a servant as his sole beneficiary. And so he asks God, what are you going to give me, seeing I don't have any children? And so God tells Abraham that he will give him a child. And he tells him to go outside and look up at the sky, at the night sky. Can you count the stars, Abraham? Nope. Neither will anyone be able to count your descendants. Your descendants are going to become a great nation, Abraham. But as the months go by, Abraham and Sarah are still without a child. And they're only getting older. And so, trying to take things into their own hands... Abraham and Sarah elect to have a child via a surrogate mother through Sarah's servant, Hagar. Now, this is where things begin to get really messy. Hagar realises that she's now carrying the heir to Abraham's estate. And so she despises her mistress, Sarah, who's now a hindrance to her becoming the first lady of the tribe. And, whilst, and so, realising how badly they've miscalculated their plan, Abraham allows Sarah to send Hagar away from the tribe. And whilst Hagar is wandering alone, pregnant with Abraham's firstborn son, an angel appears to Hagar in chapter 16 of Genesis, verse 10. And he tells her there that I will multiply your seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. A very similar promise to what Abraham was given. And verse 11, you will call your son Ishmael. But one chapter later and 13 years on, God would again promise Abraham that he would have a son through Sarah. And Abraham laughs at this. He's now 13 years on. He's 99 years old. And Sarah is 89. They're far too old to have children. And so Abraham asked God, 
please just accept Ishmael as, as the promised seed. And God says in chapter 17, verse 19, No, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And note this, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Remember that covenant because we were going to come back to it later. And as for Ishmael, God continues, I've heard thee, behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him a great nation. So there's a great promise there for Ishmael. But God is going to establish his covenant with Isaac. Verse 21, he, he reaffirms that. My covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And so in these two sons of Abraham, we have the promise of two great nations yet to come. But only a few years later, in chapter 21... Trouble again erupts. Ishmael is now in his mid to late teens and Isaac is a toddler. Chapter 21, verse 9 and 10. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. So right back in Genesis, some 4,000 years ago, a conflict had begun. And 2,000 years on, the Apostle Paul, when commenting on this incident in his letter to the Galatians, says that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. Excuse me. So let's turn to Galatians. It's in the New Testament, a few books after the Gospel records, sandwiched between Corinthians and Ephesians. Now we're only going to really focus on three main sections of Scripture in particular this evening. One we've already covered in the historical narrative of Genesis, uh, seeing the beginning of the conflict in the two boys of Abraham. Now we're going to look at Paul's perspective with 2,000 years of hindsight to draw on. And we'll see that conflict is still active then. And then we're going to trace these intriguing hostilities through to our modern day. And finally then we're going to look at the Bible's answer to this Middle Eastern struggle. So hopefully you've found Paul's letter to the Galatians and chapter 4. Paul is here going to explain to us that the lives of these boys are in fact a parable of something greater. They each represent something. Now I'm going to read this section from the English Standard Version or ESV as it's a bit easier to understand. So Galatians 4 and verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So we're being told that, that Isaac was the promised miraculous son of Abraham and Sarah, who were too old to have children. But Ishmael was the result of their plan to have a son by their own means. But now here's the tricky bit that we're going to have to get our heads around before we can proceed further. What we're about to read is that these two mothers, these two women, represent two differing covenants, two ways of life, two cities with two tribes of descent. But if you read really carefully, you're going, you're going to notice that there are in fact three places spoken of. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, or as a parable. These women are or represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children 
for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is, in, is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, that's Sarah. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has an husband. So even though Sarah was barren, she would be given more children than her servant Hagar. But did you see the three places that were described? There's Mount Sinai in Arabia. There's the present Jerusalem and the Jerusalem above or Jerusalem in the future. And Hagar, Paul tells us, represents Sinai and the present Jerusalem and Sarah, the future Jerusalem. So what does all this mean? Well, it's really simple if you know a bit of history. Paul is looking back through their history to some 1,600 years earlier when God gave Moses a covenant and the law which was given to the nation of Israel whilst they were at Sinai. The covenant was good, but it did have one major shortcoming. It could never provide salvation on its own. That is the covenant that Hagar represents. Her descendants are in bondage. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that they're servants to sin. And Paul says that the present state of Jerusalem, even though it's full of Jews, descendants of Isaac, is just like that. They are servants to sin and therefore, metaphorically speaking, they are children of Hagar and Ishmael. But on the other hand, there's Sarah's descendants, descendants of the free woman. These descendants are, these are descendants of the covenant given to Abraham through, the one of his, through one of his and Sarah's descendants that would come a man through whom salvation and freedom from sin in particular could be granted. That man we'll see at the end of our session will be Jesus Christ. Well, Paul continues to explain to the Christian believers in Galatia the incident that we looked at back in Genesis. Verse 28. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And Paul is saying that 2,000 years on, that struggle is still alive and active. The descendants of Hagar, who are in servitude to sin, are persecuting the believers in Christ who have been freed from sin's bondage. And Paul says, we can't have that. And so he quotes, quotes Sarah from back in Genesis, verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. They cannot get along. They cannot live side by side. They will not share their inheritance. Well, that, in a nutshell, is the spiritual interpretation of Hagar and Sarah and their sons. There will always be enmity between the two. And so, too, there would be enmity between their tribes naturally. And so now we're going to take a tack and traverse the course of history. It's going to be important now to separate the, the spiritual meaning and the natural descent when we're looking at the history, we're going to be looking at their natural descent. And only once we get to looking at the Bible's answer to this conflict will we again need to look at the spiritual significance. Which will, by the way, place you and I, whether we like it or not, 
into the story of this conflict. Well, perhaps a good place to start when looking at the history of this conflict is how the two sons of Abraham are viewed by their descendants. Ishmael is recognised by Muslims as an important prophet and patriarch of Islam. Like Christians and Jews, Muslims believe that Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham, born to him by Hagar. He is recognised by Muslims as the ancestor of several northern prominent Arab tribes and the ancestor of Muhammad. Muslims also believe that Muhammad was in fact the promised descendant and that in um, the promised descendant of Ishmael and that in him would be established a great nation and also along with that salvation. These Arabs see Isaac as an imposter. But the Jews, on the other hand, consider the biblical record to be accurate concerning Isaac. And that Ishmael was never to be considered a promised son of Abraham. And a great difficulty arises when the descendants of Abraham are fighting over the same area of land that was promised to a mutual patriarch. And perhaps most hotly contested of all is the city Jerusalem itself. This was the place where God chose to be worshipped. In 2 Kings, the second book of Kings, chapter 11, verse 36, God promises that David, who was a king of Israel, David, my servant, may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen me, to put my name there. And we saw in Galatians that, that Paul told us that both these parties have an intense interest in this area. No city could be more central to a multi-millennial conflict. During its long history, Jerusalem has been destroyed twice. They've been besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, and captured and recaptured 44 times. For 4,000 years, Jerusalem's engineers have been building walls, not bridges. Jerusalem means city of peace. But for now, that would be a distant promise and an unrealised dream. Jerusalem plays an essential a central role in the spiritual and emotional perspectives of three major monotheistic religions, Muslims, Christians and Jews. They all consider it a very holy place. Long an object of veneration and conflict, the holy city Jerusalem has been governed both as a provincial town and as a national capital by a protracted series of dynasties and states. In the early 20th century, the city, along with all of historic Palestine, became the focus of competing national aspirations of both the Zionists and the Palestinian Arabs. We open this evening by pointing out that the Middle Eastern conflict could and very likely will impact even us far away in Australia as it has generations before us. We briefly looked at the, the two world wars through to the withdrawal of the British mandate of Palestine at the close of the Second World War and Israel's declaration of independence on the 14th of May 1948. Now we want to continue the story and look over the events that followed in order to better understand why there is still so much tension centred around this area of the Middle East. The following day, as we said earlier, four, uh, after Israel declared independence, four Arab countries, Egypt, Syria, Transjordan and Iraq, together with Yemen, Morocco, Saudi Arabia and Sudan, joined in a war with Israel. For the Jews it was Shabbat, the Sabbath of rest, but it would, be, it would seem that there would be no rest for Isaac's descendants. 
Those who had fled the Nazi regime now found no place to rest on the turf where Abraham once pegged his tent. The only option for survival was war. The following 10 months would see the Arab Legion of Transjordan take control of the old city of Jerusalem with the support of the British on the condition they did not enter Israeli territory. Over the period of this time, Israel would welcome over 100,000 immigrants, many of whom would, uh, would join the war effort, uh, swelling the Israeli forces from a mere 35,000 to 88,000 by the close of the year. And by the 10th of March the following year, the state of Israel emerged victorious, still controlling the area that the UN had proposed for the Jewish state, as well as almost 60% of the proposed Arab state. When the war began, Israel did not have enough guns to arm their men. But with 12 European cargo ships already loaded by the Haganah militia group, before the Declaration of Independence, help was well on the way as soon as Britain had lifted her blockade at the withdrawal of the British mandate. France also came to give a bit of aid, allowing aircraft carrying arms from Czechoslovakia to land on French territory in transit through to Israel, and also permitted two armed arms shipments uh, which were meant to be going to Nicaragua, which were actually all along, in fact, intended for Israel. Czechoslovakia, we note, had no support for Israelis, or for Israeli ideology. Rather, for them, it was simply a purely commercial transaction. In fact, Israel's enemy Syria also bought a quantity of small arms from Czechoslovakia, but the shipment never arrived due to some gentle persuasion of Haganah guerrilla fighters. Nevertheless, Israel's fifth Prime Minister, Yitzhak Rabin, a former Haganah commander, would later state that without the arms of Czechoslovakia, it's very doubtful whether we would have been able to conduct the war. In Israel, the war became known as the War of Independence, but to the Arabs, the Nakba the catastrophe. 700,000 Palestinians would have to flee their homes. Just seven years later, oh, here you go, here's the 1948 war up on the screen with the um, petition of the land and the armies that fought them. You can see they're completely surrounded. Well, just seven years later, the Middle East again became the arena of lethal hostilities when Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, um, well, became president of Egypt. And Nasser took an unfriendly stance towards Israel and in 1956 he nationalised the Suez Canal. The canal is a vital waterway between Europe and Asia and it was largely owned by French and British concerns. And so France and Britain responded to this action by striking a deal with Israel, who at the same time had their ships blocked um, from using the canal and also their southern port of Alat, which is down in the far south of the blue there, um, had been blockaded by Egypt. And so in this deal with Britain and France, Israel would invade Egypt and then France and Britain would then intervene, ostensibly becoming the, the peacemakers, and take control of the canal. And so in October 1956, Israel invaded Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, and within five days, the Israeli army captured Gaza, Rafa, and Al-Arish, taking thousands of prisoners and occupying most of the peninsula east of the Suez Canal. The Israelis were then in a position to open sea communications throughout the Gulf of Aqaba. And at last in December, after the joint Anglo-French intervention, a UN emergency force was stationed in the area 
and Israeli forces could withdraw in March 1957. Israel, uh, sorry, Egypt then blocked, uh, dropped the blockade of Alat and a UN buffer force was placed in the Sinai Peninsula. Arab-Israeli forces then clashed for a third time on the, 5th of, from, on the 5th to the 10th of June, 1967, in what, became, what came to be known as the Six-Day War. In early 1967, Syria intensified its bombardment of Israeli villages uh, from positions in the Golan Heights. When the Israeli Air Force shot down six Syrian MiG fighters in reprisal, Nasser then mobilised his forces near the Sinai border to the south, dismissing the UN forces that had been placed there from the previous war. And uh, in 1960, May 1967, signed a mutual defense pact with Jordan. Israel then answered this apparent Arab rush to war by staging a preemptive assault, destroying Egypt's air force while it was still on the ground. The Israeli victory by ground, crew, by ground crew were also overwhelming. Israel, Israeli units drove back the Syrian forces from the Golan Heights in the north there. They took control of the Gaza Strip to the south and the Sinai Peninsula to the far south from Egypt and drove Jordanian forces from the West Bank. But perhaps most notable, and the greatest victory of all to the Jew was the recapture of Jerusalem, their ancient city. Well, the sporadic fighting that followed the Six-Day War again developed into a full-scale war just six years later in 1973. On October 6th, the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, Israel was caught off guard by Egyptian forces crossing the Suez Canal and by Syrian forces again crossing into the Golan Heights. The Arab armies showed greater aggressiveness and fighting ability than in previous wars, and Israeli forces suffered terrible casualties. The Israeli army, however, recovered quickly and pushed its way into Syrian territory and encircled the Egyptian Third Army to the south by crossing the Suez Canal and establishing forces on its west bank. Still, it never regained the seemingly impenetrable fortifications that it had made along the Suez Canal that Egypt had destroyed in its initial successes of the war. The fighting, which lasted over 20 days through the Islamic month, holy month of Ramadan, came to an end on October 26th. Israel signed a formal peace uh, ceasefire agreement with Egypt on November 11 and the following year on May 31st with Syria, 1974. A UN peacekeeping force was again established between Israel and Egypt. On March 6, 1979, Israel and Egypt signed a peace treaty, formally ending the state of war that had existed between the two countries for 30 years. Under the terms of the treaty, which had resulted from the Camp David Accords signed in 1978, Israel returned the entire Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt. And in return, Egypt at last would recognise Israel's right to exist. The two countries subsequently established normal diplomatic relations. On June 5th, 19. 82, less than six weeks after Israel's complete withdrawal from Sinai, increased tensions between Israelis and Palestinians resulted in the Israeli bombing of Beirut and southern Lebanon, where the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or the PLO, had a number of strongholds. The following day, Israel invaded Lebanon, and by June 14, its land forces reached as far as the outskirts of Beirut, which uh, was then encircled. But the Israeli government stopped short and agreed to halt its advances and uh, continue negotiations with the PLO. After many delays and massive amounts of Israeli shelling of 
West Beirut, the PLO evacuated the city under the supervision of a multinational force. Eventually, Israeli troops withdrew from West Beirut and the Israeli army had withdrawn entirely from Lebanon by June 1985. A little bit more recently, in July 2006, Hezbollah launched an operation against Israel in an attempt to pressure the country into releasing Lebanese prisoners. In this operation, they killed a number of Israeli soldiers and also captured two. Israel then launched an offensive into southern Lebanon to recover their captured soldiers. And the war, that lasted 30 the war then lasted 30 days, but left more than 1,000 Lebanese dead and about a million others displaced. Several Arab leaders would then criticise Hezbollah for inciting the conflict. Nevertheless, Hezbollah's uh, ability to fight the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces, to a standstill won them quite a lot of praise throughout the Arab community. And forever since, it seems that Jew and Arab have fought for this homeland. The Sunni Islamic Hamas and Shia Islamic Hezbollah and the PLO have given Israel no rest in holding her current borders. Many countries, including Canada, the European Union, Israel, Australia, Japan, United Kingdom and United States and many others have designated Hamas and Hezbollah as terrorist organisations. Here's a photo of an Israeli patrol um, amid heightened tensions. There's no real uh, relevance to a specific war, but I, I like the photo because of the disparity between the sizes of the backpacks. It's quite interesting. I was just thinking maybe it's not the whole frame. There might not be all the soldiers in the frame, so maybe you feel sorry for the tenth guy that drew the short straw and has to carry the tank. Anyway, unfortunately, even today, this year, we've seen a continuation of these deadly strikes, of uh, deadly attacks, particularly by Palestinians targeting Israelis, so far killing 31 people this year. Meanwhile, Israel have carried out near nightly military searches and arrest raids in the West Bank and more than 150 Palestinians have been killed. Many of them, but not all of them, have been while carrying out attacks on Jews or during clashes with security forces. Less than two weeks ago, that bus that you can see there was, uh, fell prey to a bomb attack that killed a 15-year-old uh, Canadian-Israeli boy and also injured another 14. So it seems there's no, no end in sight. And so we finally turn to the Bible for answers. And the prophet Joel outlines what will need to happen before peace comes to the Middle East. So let's turn to the prophecy of Joel. It's about two thirds of the way through your Bible, just after Ezekiel, Daniel, and Hosea, then Joel. God wants people to respect him at his word and so will judge all nations for their sin. The way he'll go about that will involve yet another war and that's going to be centred around Jerusalem. Joel 3 and verse 1. For behold in those days and at that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem... I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Oh dear. So God says here that these nations have parted his land. Remember this slide? And look at who's involved there. 
Because these are the nations that God says he's going to bring into this war. Most of the world, including the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, most of Europe. And God says, it's my land. It was never yours to part in the first place. And those there who voted against the plan are mostly anti-Semitic enemies of Israel. And they're all going to be brought together into the land of Israel for this war. So skipping to verse 9. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means Yahweh's judgment. Yahweh is, of course, the, uh, being the God of the Bible. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about, God says. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. It's time to cut them down. Their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision or judgment. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So there's this huge battle around Jerusalem. And the nations are gathered here to fight. And the sun and the moon are darkened, verse 15, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. God will deliver his people Israel and establish the promise of the land that he made to Abraham and Isaac. Verse 17. So ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and there shall no stranger pass through her anymore. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the rivers of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. At last Jerusalem will be truly a city of peace and the holy land will be fruitful. But look at Israel's neighbours at the conclusion of this war. Verse 19. Egypt shall be a desolation. And Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. They've persecuted Isaac. But Judah shall dwell forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation. God will punish those who persecute Israel as Ishmael and his descendants have done. But Israel is going to dwell at peace. And how is that fair, you might ask? Why would God punish Egypt even though Israel as a nation today don't even accept Yahweh as their God or Christ as the Son of God and their Messiah? Well, Israel will also suffer heavy casualties in this war. The prophet Zechariah says in his 13th chapter in verse 8 that two-thirds of the Jews that are in the land will perish in this war. That will be the level of rebuke required to make them turn to their God. But then they're going to dwell at peace. And Egypt also has hope. 
Egypt also will need to be purged. But Egypt will eventually be rebuilt and will worship the God of Israel. I'll just read you a few verses from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 19, verse 21 to 25, if you want to note it down. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 21 to 25. I'm going to read it from the ESV again. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows unto the Lord, and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt. There's the punishment. Striking and healing them. And they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy, and he will heal them. In that day there will be a highway from from Egypt down in the south to Assyria up in the north. And Assyria will come down to Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now the incredible thing about this is at the time of writing when Isaiah wrote his prophecy, Egypt and Assyria had been at war for centuries. But here they are at peace. And there's a highway that runs between them, running right through the land of Israel to the centre of worship of the true God, the God of Israel at Jerusalem. And verse 24, in that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts hath blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt my people and Assyria the work of my hands and Israel mine inheritance you see in the future it won't only be Israel that are his people Egypt's going to be his people so rather it's going to be people from all nations that love him that will be his people So you want to see how we are involved in this conflict, this Middle Eastern conflict? Well, let's return to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We saw earlier that there are two lines descending from Abraham, one of Hagar the bondmaid and the other through the free woman, Sarah. We're going to be part of this conflict, metaphorically speaking, The son of the bondwoman persecuted the son of the free woman. And no matter what our view of human rights today is, God says he promised the land to Egypt. It should never have been parted. So these two women represent these two covenants, one which could offer salvation through a promised son, which would be Jesus Christ, And the other, the law of Moses, which could only point forward to that salvation. It was still a great promise. It was still a great covenant. Ishmael was still going to be a multitude, but not with that salvation that was required to to bring glory to God. And so now in Galatians, we're going to jump back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul's going to explain how we can choose which covenant we're part of. Which line of descent, if you like. Galatians 3, verse 24. Wherefore, the law of Moses, there's the covenant to Ishmael, was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, Isaac, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is, note this, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if ye be Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There will be no servants to sin here. There will be no distinction made according to race or status or gender. Anyone can be part of this hope. This hope of a world at peace, freed from sin. That means God's conditions. So there's prerequisites. As we just read, you must believe. You need to have an understanding and have faith in God's work of salvation in Christ and be baptised. We believe that the war, the Battle of Armageddon that we just looked at in Joel 3 is not far away. And the question we want to leave with you is what camp will you be in? Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.